0: Well, good morning. Am I plugged in? I am. Um, I had a uh, cool experience this week. Um, uh, Pastor Keith actually had a flat tire on his motorcycle. That wasn't the cool experience. I'm getting there. but um, So he brought it over to our house to uh, uh, to fix it. And um, a, uh, Eleanor and Aiden found out that Keith was there, so they want, ran downstairs to go and see him. And uh, Ellie asked him if, uh, she said, could we sing He Rains this Sunday? And I just thought, I, I mean, oh man, that just did my heart good at a lot of levels. You know, number one, that um, that our kids uh, know the pastors at this church, uh, enjoy them, and feel comfortable going up to them and asking a question and making a request like that. Even in the Even in the garage with the tools out and the tire off, that my daughter felt like she could run down and... And say, could we sing this song? And then secondly, and of course, that she wants to worship God. And that there are uh, songs that she knows and that she appreciates and can say, I, I want to use this one. So anyway, it's pretty cool. And I just want to thank you, the worship team, for your faithful work with that. So thank you very much. Let's pray. Father, as we go to your word this morning, I pray that you would just quicken our hearts by your Holy Spirit to see the truth that is there. And Father, not to leave it there, but to, to pull it out, to find those principles that are timeless, to find those ways in which it applies specifically and directly to our lives right now. And your word is timeless in that way, that it teaches us about who you are and what you're doing and what you want for us. And so, Father, help us to do the good job, uh, the hard work as followers of yours. Um, to listen well now to your spirit, who is our teacher. Thank you for being with us, and uh, we just give this time to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, have you ever had one of those um, experiences, something comes into your life, something unexpected, uh, undesired, and it catches you off guard, and you just think, Lord, what is this here for? What's this all about? Where is your hand in this? Why have you allowed it? Why have you permitted it? What are you doing with it? I don't like it. Why is this here? It causes me to question you. Your goodness. Your sovereignty. Your control. Your understanding of what really would be best for me, which I omnisciently know. You ever felt that way? Several years ago, I was uh, serving as an intern in Yakima, Washington with uh, um, the youth group there. And uh, when, I, when I arrived, I, I flew into town. I didn't have a car for the summer and um, I needed some wheels to kind of get around. And one of the families in the church, out of their generosity, said, hey, listen, there's a car for sale just down the road from our house. We'll buy that car and let you use it for the summer. And then when you go, we'll just, we'll sell it off. And we thought, that sounds great. So they bought the car and... and um, got it all insured and and licensed and everything, and then called me up to come over and pick it up. And it was a yellow 1976 Datsun B210 Honeybee. Anybody know this car? This is not on any poster anywhere, ever. (laughs) It is one of the ugliest cars ever made. It was yellow, and right down the side it says Honeybee, right on it. And it has these honeycomb-shaped... Uh, hubcaps, and this car, uh, in its best of days, didn't look great. But certainly, th- this particular day, it did not. Three of the four cylinders worked, which was the best it had going for it. Um, none of the gauges inside worked. I didn't know how fast I was going, how much gas I didn't have. You know, I, I didn't. I didn't know anything. How many miles I had traveled? Uh, the seatbelt worked intermittently. You know, you could get it on, but then not off. And uh, uh, emergency brake didn't work. You had to be real careful how you parked it. Uh, this was a sketchy car, to say the least. And to be honest with you, it just kept breaking down all summer. And I was having to put my own money into this thing to try to get it fixed. And, and it was just really frustrating. One time I was turning a corner. I got right in the middle of the intersection and the car died. And we couldn't get it started again. And I've got the pastor's son with me uh on the passenger side and so the two of us hop out and we're pushing this car through an intersection and i'm thinking i'm going to kill the pastor's kid and get fired and and honestly it sounds funny now it was not at the time and i remember thinking lord where's your goodness in this i'm trying to serve you this summer you know and i would really like just reliable transportation that would be great and so it was just really this this bane for me all summer long um And to be honest, it caused me to question just the Lord's goodness and what what was he doing. We'll get back to that story in a little bit here because there's a good ending to it. Um, Abram's having one of those moments in Genesis 15. Last week, we looked in Genesis 14. Here he's had this incredible military victory. He has defeated this uh, alliance of eastern kings that came through and, and wiped out an alliance in the Jordanian region and plundered everybody and taking taking uh, Abram's nephew Lot with them and, and on their way escaping. Abram catches wind of what's happened and he goes, attacks them, routes them, comes back with the plunder and then he has this opportunity that's presented to him. The king of Sodom, King Bera, comes up and says, Listen, I'll take the people. You take all the plunder. You take all the riches. It's yours. This is quite a business proposition. Abram would come out definitely ahead here. He could sort of walk off into the sunset as a rich man. And what he does is he properly discerns that if he were to make this deal, he would be dancing with the devil. That this man who was giving him this offer really has ulterior motives and that in the end it would jeopardize the glory that ought to go to the Lord for the victory that was accomplished. And so he declines. He says he won't do it. And we look at this and we think, our flawed little friend Abram has done it. Victory. He's showing some maturity. He's coming around. And we think, we think he's got it until you get to the next chapter, which is the story of his life. Because after all, Abram is like you and I. Okay? And in this next couple of verses, we learn basically that Abram's terrified. He's afraid. He's afraid. This seemingly bold, confident, respectful, righteous decision seemed seemed to be made so easily right at the moment of crisis that is actually behind it. He is just filled with insecurity and anxiety and really is questioning the goodness of God. And, And we see that because of the first words that come to us in chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield your very great reward. And so we, here we have words spoken from an omniscient God who knows the condition of Abram's heart and speaks to it with words of truth. But the condition of Abram's heart is this. He's filled with fear. His belief is filled with fear. He knows that God is going to bless him. He, he's been told this. He's expecting it. He's waiting for it. And yet, even in this moment of making a righteous, a respectable decision... He's conflicted. And so you kind of have to ask yourself, well, what is it that Abram would have to fear? What's he afraid of? After all, he's just had this incredible victory. With only 318 skilled men, did he go up and rout this alliance? He had some allies with him too, but this wasn't a victory he should have won in his own strength. So you think he could be real confident, but he's not. Well, here's one of the things he might be afraid of. Retribution from his enemies. So he's defeated this eastern alliance, but after all, this was the bully, right? These were the big kids on the block. They were taking everyone else's lunch money. Very likely that they could go home, regather their forces, come back and pay a lesson to Abram. So there's a reasonable fear there. He might fear vengeance. Um, Also, he stood up to Bera, king of Sodom, who gave him this offer. I'll take the people, you take the plunder. And Abram said, I'll have nothing. I'll take nothing from you because I don't want you to be able to say that you made me rich rather than the Lord. So I'm not going to take anything from you. So maybe Barah is kind of smarting over that a little bit thinking that I'll get back at Abram when I have the opportunity. So maybe it's not just enemies abroad but enemies right at home that he's afraid of. In any case he's Seemed confident in his decision. He seemed an honorable, respectable man. But really he's just bubbling over with insecurity. And God speaks some encouraging words to him. And he says, Abram, I'm going to be your shield. There's actually a wordplay that's going on here in the original Hebrew. In the preceding chapter, in chapter 14, Melchizedek used a word to say that God... uh, It's actually verse 20. He said, and blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. And that Hebrew word for delivered is megen. And the word for shield that is used here in chapter 15 is magen. And so there's a bit of a word play that's going on here that the Lord is doing. He's saying, in a sense, he's affirming what Melchizedek observed. Yes, it was I who delivered you. And it's going to be me that protects you in the future. I delivered you, and I'm going to be your shield. And he's tying those two things together he's showing the continuity of his protection and his involvement and his empowerment for abram throughout scripture we're told that god is the shield for those who love him and i got to be honest with you sometimes it's hard to see how the lord shields us isn't it but you have to think about it for a second what god protects us from we frequently don't see I guarantee you the list of things that God has protected you from is long and dangerous and life-threatening. But we don't see it because we've been protected from it. I was thinking about this when we went to um, Ethiopia back in 06. A group of us went, uh, five of us. And we went uh, um, to visit the church that we're partnered up with there. And and one of the things we wanted to do was to go to the market with some of the pastors to see where they made some of the purchases that were distributed to the kids in the MTN program that our church sponsors. And uh, we went to this market. And I have to be honest with you. Well, number one, I hate shopping. I really don't care for shopping. I've, I've read an article that said uh, that for a man to go into a mall and be confronted with all these decisions and all this kind of stuff at the same time is the equivalent stress load of going to war. Men, anybody? <laughs> I'm a couple of you. It resonated with me. Okay, So we go to this market and, and we stand out like a sore thumb. And, and wherever we go, we're, we're the white people. That's, that's it. And everybody sees us. They know that we're rich Westerners. That's the, that's the perception. And so as we're walking along, they're yelling out and pointing at us, "Fringe, Faringe, Faringe, which means foreigner. Very comforting. And, and the whole time, I mean, people are trying to get to us to buy their stuff. And it felt awful. And this, this was not, um, it was just was not the safest place to be. And so the pastors of the church basically formed a wall around us. There were one or two in the front, one or two in the back, and a couple on the sides. And we were in the middle. And so as we're walking through this market, and everyone pointing, fringe, fringe. Um, And I just remember watching them and being so grateful for these men who were acting as a shield for us. Nothing happened. There was no incident because they shielded us. Because they were there, because they were present, because they knew the dangers and they protected anything from coming at us that we couldn't handle. The Lord is the same way, and he is assuring to Abram here that he has delivered him, and that he will continue to be his shield. But it seems that Abram's questions are more than just, will I be okay, or will, I ha- will there be some retribution directed towards me? He actually seems to question whether or not God will be faithful to him. He seems to question God's goodness and his ability to sort of make good on the promise. Yes, he understands it was God who delivered him. It seems like he's trying to get that, okay, God will be my shield, all right, that's good. But one of the other things that's said here is that I am your great reward. I am your great reward. And this omniscient encouragement from the Lord lets us know that in Abram's heart, there is a question of whether or not... He is going to be blessed by God. Because here he's just left this big reward behind. And so he's filled with insecurity about that. And the Lord is telling him, I am your great reward. Let those words sink in for a second here. He didn't say, I will be sure to reward you. He even changes the nature of the reward. He says, I am your great reward. Not just clay pots and cattle, and livestock, and gold, and plunder. I am your great reward. And I think there's a real practical lesson for us in this, and that's we, don't, we need to be careful not to misunderstand or confuse material wealth with God's blessing. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with money. But we cannot associate it one-to-one with God's blessing. The prosperity gospel is alive and well today. You will hear it frequently. You will hear preachers say things like, God wants to bless you and make you successful. Or, God wants to bless you and give you a better job. God wants to bless you and enlarge your territory. You can get a book deal with that one. The reality of it is God wants to bless you so he may strip you of your wealth so that you have to rely upon him. God wants to bless you. He may bring calamity into your life to expose your false securities. God wants to bless you. He may bring trials into your life to test test and form your character. And I think there's a really interesting lesson here that Abram learns it's not just in this material wealth that will be the sign of God's blessing but in Abram's case rather than gold he gets God he's not going to have masses of wealth lumped on him in this instance but he is going to be the father of a nation with descendants just absolutely innumerable that's the blessing he gets to be the father of the family of God So you think Abram would get this and say, Wow, thanks, that's pretty good. You're going to be my shield and my reward. That's even better than I thought. Thanks, Lord. No, he's not done yet. Because Abram is like us. And he wants to know a little bit of this how. How is God going to fulfill this promise? Look at verse 2. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. There's something interesting going on here. There was a custom of the day that if you did not have descendants, you could essentially pick an heir uh, of your family household, and you could designate them, and they would inherit all of your wealth and and your household. And it seems to me that Abram here is, whether he's done it on paper or not, in his mind, he's already given up on the Lord, giving him son and he's already named his successor to God it's going to be Eliezer he's in my household I don't know if they drew up the contract but in his mind this is how he sees it going after all this promise that God has given him all hinges on having an heir how can he be the father of a great nation he doesn't even have a single son that's what Abram's feeling and so he's really stuck on this how question. How are you going to do this Lord? And I want to tell you, I think there's a lot of questions that pop into our minds and I think some of them God more readily answers and I think some of them he doesn't seem to touch hardly at all. The what question, I think that's something that God answers. What do you want me to do? What do you have for me? I think God will communicate to that, that to us over time if we're patient. If we search his word, if we talk to believers who know us well and and walk with God, they can give us this kind of counsel. And I think I think God's been pretty clear on what he wants for us and from us. The how though, that's always the one that's less clear. How will this happen? My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. A lot of times it's the how that's real mysterious to us. The when? That seems even harder. Ask King David. He knew he had been anointed king. But when was he going to ascend the throne? What we have in the Psalms is how long, O Lord? How long? The when is an even harder question. The why? I don't think we should go there, to be honest with you. I think it's beyond our pay grade. Why God chooses to do something? I don't think we can possibly fathom the mind of God. And when Job asked him, God did not give him the answer to why. He simply said, brace yourself like a man. Let's talk about the mechanics of the universe. Do you understand these things? No, you don't. So don't come to me with the metaphysical when you don't even get the mechanical. And he basically leaves him with this question and Job just says, yeah, that was kind of a foolish thing to do. I'll just trust The why question I don't even think is for us. But God is gracious to Abram here. He actually gives him some of the how. And he kind of unfolds this in, in this com- these comforting words that follow. Verse 4 here. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. I love that little jab there. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. I think God does three really generous things for Abram here. First of all, I think he gives he gives him a little bit of the how. He says, No, it's not going to be Eliezer, you're going to have your own son. And I think this is incredibly generous and gracious of God to give him more detail here. He certainly doesn't have to do it. But he goes a step beyond. He gives him a visual. Look in the sky. See the stars. And when you see those, you will be reminded that this is the number of descendants you can have, if you could even count them. That's how great this blessing I have in store for you will be. And he gives him this visual the same way he gave to Noah, a visual of, of, of promise. And he goes on to remind him of his past faithfulness. I pulled you out of Ur, out of the Chaldeans. I brought you out of there. And I think there's a couple lessons here that you and I can take just by way of application. First of all, you've got to know that when life is dealing you with a situation and you don't see the how or the why or even the what God is doing, and an incident has come in, something has come into your life, and you just wish it were otherwise, and you have all that insecurity bubbling up, Lord, where are you in this? You have got to accept that our sight is just too small. It's too small. We see our lane, and then we see our interests in our lane, and that's about it. Okay? But God understands He can see around the corner. He can see all of our lands. He, he understands every aspect of every person's life and is braiding those together throughout the history of the world to accomplish his purposes. And you and I cannot do that. We can only see about right here. And so first of all, I think we have to just acknowledge our sight's too small. And another thing I think we can do is remind ourselves of God's faithfulness to us in the past as well. Amy and I had an opportunity this week to go and visit a small group group and we went over to the Sackett's house with their group and we had uh, two different individuals shared their story of God's, how God drew them to himself and how they became Christians and kind of their story of their walk with God. And one of the things that was fascinating in listening to each of them was that they were able to go back and recount all of these instances where God had been faithful to them. All of these ways he had delivered them over the past. And it was amazing as they began to tell the stories that just one pile up after another. And I don't think that you and I stop and reflect back on that enough. And I think it would be an incredible gift if you were to just sit down with a a paper and a pen and just ask yourself, how has God been faithful to me in the past? And to line them out and to look, you'd be amazed. In verse 6, we're given the remarkable words, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And this is just absolutely one of the watershed passages of all scripture. Because it's in this verse that we learn how the means of how a person is forgiven and how righteousness is applied. Abram believed God. He believed what God was doing. He was looking ahead to what God had promised You and I do the same thing in order that we would be saved, that we would be forgiven our sins, and that the righteousness of God would be credited to us. We look back and we believe that God has done it. Throughout all of history, the cross is the central point in in all of time. Looking forward to believing that God would take care of sin. And for us, we look back believing that He has And I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I thought, you know, if only I were like Abram or Moses or David or one of these guys that had these visions or something very concrete to look at and to think, it would be so much easier to believe. I wouldn't have questions or doubts or struggles. We have the cross, the ultimate vision, the ultimate concrete symbol to look back and believe not that God will do something, but that he has done something. He's intervened in history and sent his own son to die for our sins, that we would be forgiven. That his righteousness would be transferred to our account. We have the cross, so we are better by far. So Abram's got it now, right? No, Abram's like us. Even his belief is mixed with unbelief. Verse 8, But Abram said, O sovereign Lord... How can I know I will gain possession of it? As if enough has not already been communicated. This reminded me of this past Christmas. Um, Eleanor, my four-year-old, you'll see her after the service. Beautiful girl, little red pigtails, big smile on her face. Uh, She comes up to me with paper and pen in hand and you can guess what she wanted. She says, Dad, can you help me write my, my Christmas list to Santa Claus? And I thought... Now, we don't take a hard stance on this one way or the other. If you want to talk to me about our decision and how we handle this, that would be great. Uh, But uh, we'll do that afterwards, okay? Um, I thought, sure, I can oblige you right now. So she sat down, and, and this is what she asked me. She dictated, I wrote. That was my job. She says, Dear Santa and Mrs. Claus, she doesn't want to leave anybody out. I would like a dress, a pair of shoes, a pair of mitten gloves for Christmas. Would you please send lots of presents? Please let us know. Thank you, Eleanor Jane Johns. The part that got me was, let us know. Because here's, you know, Eleanor's like, well, I've got some belief, but, you know, it's, it's a little shaky. And if you're not going to come through and you can't confirm it, you can't give me a receipt or, you know, confirmation code, then I've got some memes and papas and grandmas and grandpas and, you know, we'll, we'll take an alternate route here. Let us know. And then we'll see if we're sticking with you. Um, I think Abram's question is just like that. How will I know? I'd like some confirmation. I'd like something clear. And you would think that Abram would be above this at this point because here God has protected Sarai and he when they were in Egypt. Nothing happened to them. They came out. In fact, they came out of it rich. He delivered them from that circumstance despite Abram's duplicity. Then he has this incredible military victory with just a few armed men and a couple alliances, outnumbered, a victory he had no business winning. You think he would say, hey, God is clearly with me. I've got it. I trust you. You're good. You will be faithful. But his belief is mixed with unbelief, and he still wants to know. One thing that I think he does right that I think is good for us to listen to is it's the way that he questions God. He directs his questions to God. And I think that says an awful lot. I think there is a way of questioning that is actually filled with faith. And I think that's what we see in Abram. After all, taking the questions to God, taking his struggles to him, is an evidence that he believes God is there. He has an audience with him. He believes that God hears, believes that God answers. Taking our questions to God is looking to Him. Taking our questions to God indicates we wish we knew more. And so even our questioning can be filled with faith as we direct it to the Lord, asking Him for His answers. And then secondly, there's the way He approaches God. He says, O Sovereign Lord. His questioning is still filled with faith. And God is again gracious, and he responds, and he shows him, um, I believe, his wisdom. Look at verse 9. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward they will come out with great possession. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. And the fourth generation your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of Canaanites, Kenizzites, uh, I, this one just gets me every time, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. What I think God shows to Abram here is just that he is understanding of all that's going on. He sees the big picture. He's not caught in just one lane and, one, and just one set of limited perspective. And he shows him that actually Abram won't even be alive to witness the complete fulfillment of everything that he has promised. He will simply see it inaugurated. He also shows him that his descendants will be Slaves for 400 years before they actually take the land. And Abram, just even though he gives them some of the details here, he shows them that he knows much more than Abram does. God is playing multiple chess games at one time here. He's not just dealing with Abram and his set of problems, but he's also dealing with future descendants in all of Israel. And he's also dealing with the Amorites whose sin is not yet full. God's going to judge them appropriately and he's going to weave and braid all of these things together in perfect timing so that God's will is accomplished. And Abram's sight simply isn't big enough to see this but God gives him a glimpse. So you think Abram would feel a little more confident but there's still an issue here. So even though God shows him that he's wise, whoops, what happened here? There's also this this question that Abram Abraham has and he needs to see that God is faithful. And there's a lot of ways that you and I make promises today. If you're a six-year-old and you're making a promise, you cross your heart and hope to die. That's how you do it. And if you're in a courtroom and you're making an oath to tell the truth, you might put your hand on the Bible or raise your hand. If you're making a business deal, you sign a contract. If it's a gentleman's deal, you're just going to shake hands. There's a lot of ways that we make an oath and make a promise to one another. In Abram's day, an oath was confirmed by a ceremony that's explained or showed to us here, where animals are brought together, cut in half, and then separated. And an aisleway is created between the two. And then the two parties that are making a covenant one to another will walk side by side down this aisle between the animals, and they will speak their oaths to each other. And they will speak their covenant. What is fascinating is, and, and also because of the blood that's shed, uh, this, is a, this is an incredibly important and sacred ceremony, and if you were to go back on it and not honor it, it would be a huge disgrace. But what's fascinating about this is that in the vision that Abram has, the vision of God that is given here of this, of this torch and this smoking pot, which is of God, he walks alone through this aisle. He doesn't walk with Abram. It is a unilateral covenant that God is making. It's a promise that he and he alone is making. It's not a, if you do this, then that. He is saying, it simply will happen, and it will occur as I do it. He confirms it all by himself. Hebrews 6 has just a fascinating quote on this, and so I want to read that passage to you. It's Hebrews 6, 13. When God made his promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abram received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his promise very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. The bottom line that Abram learns through all of this is that he doesn't need to be afraid of these imposing enemies who might want some retribution or vengeance against him for his victory. And he doesn't need to be afraid of the uncertainty of his heart. He can trust God. God is faithful and God is reliable. Even though it may not look like it in the instance in front of him, God holds the big picture and that he is faithful. I'm going to go back to my honeybee story here just to kind of wrap things up. As I told you, this car was um, a great frustration to me. And it all culminated in this one instance where I had parked it up at the top of a hill at a friend's house, carefully putting it in gear because the emergency brake didn't work. At least, I'm pretty sure I put it in gear. It's, it's been hotly debated over the years. And after several hours of sitting there, the car decided on its own volition, like Herbie, to begin to roll. And it went down a three-foot embankment and began to careen down this hill about a quarter of a mile. Picking up incredible speed. It missed a, a big wood pile on one side and then a swing set on another. And then it came to this gully at the bottom of the property with the, that had a, uh, a barbed wire fence across it and it actually went under the fence because of the gully that was there. And with as much speed as it had built up down this quarter of a mile hill, it came out of this gully and got airborne and flew into a tree, nose first, which caused the doors to fly open and glass to fly out. I mean, it just smashed the car to smithereens. Well, we didn't know any of this had happened. We simply came out and looked and saw, the car's gone. Someone stole the bee. You know, where is this thing? And we kind of, we just couldn't come to grips with it. So finally, we called the police. I think someone stole my car. What kind is it? Well, <laughs> it's a 1976, you know, on a Datsun B210. Okay, i will keep an eye out for Mr. Johns. Well, we get a call the next morning, and they say, Hey, we found your car. It looks like someone stole it and took it joyriding. We found it in a tree. (laughs) We thought, you're kidding. This is incredible. So we, I'm thinking, that's great. You know, so we hop out and get in the car and go find this thing. We get the address and then we realize that the address is about a quarter of a mile away, downhill, from where we are. And, ah, we see what's happened here. And then I didn't feel so good. Um, Call a tow truck driver and he meets us out there and He says, I know this car. I've already towed it this summer. And I thought, yeah, you sure did. Uh, And so he hauls it out. and, um, And I'm just sitting there thinking, this stupid car. Why did God bring this into my life this summer? The next day, we got a phone call from the insurance company. And this $300 purchase fetched a $750 reimbursement that went back to the people who had purchased it. And so they learned a valuable lesson on being generous and and, uh, giving of their resources towards the ministry. And so that was something that they learned. And to be honest, as I thought back about it, this silly car uh, was loved by all in the youth group and became the center point of mocking for me, which was fine, but... Uh, it gained me a rapport with the kids and I spent lots of time leaning over the hood of the car with kids trying to get things fixed and it became just a way to relate to them and connect with them. And and so I began to realize that God really did have something planned with this car. Sort of let it go like, okay, well maybe that's enough. And then five years later, uh, I was preaching at the Union Gospel Mission in Yakima, Washington There's a room full of people that are waiting to get a meal, and they've got to get through my message first, much like all of you right now. So they're feeling the same way, hostage until Eric's done talking. And I'm trying to gain a rapport with this group because I really would like to share the gospel with them. And I'm trying to think, how do I connect this room full of people I don't know and they don't know? And so I thought, well, telling this honeybee story would be a good way to go. So I start off with my honeybee story. And a man in the middle raises his hand, uh, and I think, oh, no, I'm going to get heckled you know so i don't call on him which he takes as an invitation to just speak out and he does and he says did it end up in a tree and i said yeah it did and he said i was the tow truck driver <laughs> 5 years later This guy is planted in the audience where I'm trying to preach a gospel message. And instantly when he said that it verified the story I was telling, it verified that I was telling the truth. And I had an instant rapport with that room. And I don't know if anybody came to know the Lord, but they listened. And I thought, that is the evidence of a God who knows the big picture. Who blesses us with calamity and silly cars and stupid things and some things that are much heavier than that because he can see around the corner and we can't. But he is trustworthy, he is faithful, and we can depend on him. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that you can see beyond our lane. That you have purposes that are much bigger than our individual lives. And yet you love us enough to intimately and personally care for us. Thanks for the encouragement that you speak to Abram, because after all, he and we are... Very similar. Thanks that he could learn of your comfort and your encouragement and your faithfulness. And trust you in all circumstances that you are faithful even when it doesn't look like it. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen.